Good morning, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful day. Today is the 11th day of Adar Beis. Getting closer to Purim. First day you can read the Megillah. The olden days. And uh, we continue. We left off on the top of page 7a. So the last thing we left is that the reason why the Torah has to tell us that the court is not allowed to put someone to death on Shabbos to fulfill the positive commandment of of putting someone to death if he deserves a you know it's a capital crime and he deserves a capital punishment is um, not because in general a positive commandment overrides a prohibition because it's not true we don't find anywhere a positive commandment overriding a prohibition yes we find a positive commandment overriding a prohibition like tzitzis yeah. overrides a prohibition of shatness but there's no death sentence involved no death penalty involved but in the case of the death penalty, we don't find anywhere in the Torah that a positive commandment, and we can't learn from Briz and Pesach, that the mother already said that we can't learn from there. So why do I need a Pesach to teach me that the court is not allowed to sentence someone to death, carry out the death sentence on Shabbos? Because otherwise I would learn from a Kalvachimer. What's the Kalvachimer? Kalvachimer is... And, and this is where we left off. And I'm sure you couldn't sleep last night, but here we are. <laughs> Left in suspense. What's the Kavachimer? Ma'avoyda. Shichamur. Doing service in the temple, which is, which is very important. And uh, how, how do we know that doing service in the temple is so important and so significant? Because with Deich Shabbos, you're even allowed to do the service in the temple, even on Shabbos. You have to slaughter the animal, burn the animal. Mm-hmm. Things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. But doing the service overrides Shabbos. But nevertheless, let's say the only one who can do the service is a Kayan. There's one Kayan who can do the service. But he's a murderer. He killed someone. He murdered someone. And nevertheless, we, we take him away. If he goes and hangs himself on the altar, not hangs himself, kills himself. I mean, he hangs onto the altar. He thinks it's going to be a refuge for him. You pull him away from the altar and you put him to death. Unless he's on top of the altar and he's and he's doing the service, if he's doing. If he's in the middle of the service and on top of the altar doing the service, then you have to wait till he finishes the service. But if he's just hanging on to the corners of the altar, on the side, on the walls of the altar, you pull him away and you, you carry out the death sentence. But who's going to do the service? Tough luck. Fulfilling the mitzvah of giving someone a death sentence for the court to give someone a death sentence overrides the mitzvah of doing the service in the temple. Let's say he's the only coin to do the service. Despite the fact that doing the service overrides Shabbos. Mm-hmm. So how much more so? Ain't a din, isn't it the din That fulfilling the mitzvah of putting someone to death should override Shabbos. Doing the service in the temple is superior to Shabbos. And yet, fulfilling the mitzvah of giving someone a capital punishment is more significant than doing the service. So how much more so that fulfilling the mitzvah of, of giving someone a capital, uh, capital punishment is more significant than Shabbos, so the court should carry out, even on Shabbos. Mm-hmm. That's why I need a pasuk to tell me, no, you're not allowed to carry out the death sentence on Shabbos. I always wanted to know what the corners of the altar. Taisus asks, wait a minute, he doesn't understand the Kavachimer. What kind of Kavachimer is this? Maybe... It's not because fulfilling the mitzvah of carrying out the death is more 
is more significant than doing the service. Maybe someone who's a murderer is simply not qualified. A Kayan who's a murderer is not qualified to, uh, to do the service. Like it says, a, a Kayan who murdered someone is not allowed to do, is not allowed to do the Brichat Kohanim, can't go up to do the priestly blessing. Because your hands are filled with blood, how can you stick out your hands and bless people? Your hands are you're murdered. So, so maybe here you're a murderer. You can't do the avodah. They said it's not true. You can't say that because if he's on top of the altar and he's in the middle of the service, we let him continue do, doing the service. So obviously, biblically, the fact that you're a murderer doesn't stop you. That's that's one sin. But meanwhile, you have a mitzvah. You're a kohen. You're a representative of the Jewish people. You have to do your service. So Taisus wants to say, maybe even even Kainim, even a murderer biblically can do Brichus Kainim. If he can do the service, he can surely do Brichus Kainim. But the rabbi said that he shouldn't do it. Then Taisus says, well, maybe we can make a distinction. Because you murdered with your hands. Brichus Kainim with, with your hands. Lift up your hands and bless the Jewish people. How can you lift up your hands that are dripping with blood? But the service in the temple, that's not, that, that is okay. So therefore it is a good kavuchayim, even though he could do the service. Nevertheless, the mitzvah of fulfilling, he's qualified to do the service. Nevertheless, the mitzvah of, of capital punishment overrides. The avodah, let the avodah remain neglect. There's no other claim to the service, tough luck. We have to grab him from the mizbeach. No, we don't wait a minute, no dispensation, and we take him and we, we, we carry out the death sentence. And so it's more significant than doing the avodah, and the avodah is more significant than Shabbos, how much more so the fulfilling of the mitzvah of capital punishment should override Shabbos, the bezin should carry out the punishment even on Shabbos. So that's why we need a pasuk to teach me, to teach me that nah. So it's a kavuchayman, not because a positive commandment to superior overrides a lav. Not in this case. This is a case of a lav that has a Shabbos, that has a skila, that has a death cry, death sentence. Because of the kavuchayman. Okay, so Gemara says so. It's a powerful kavuchayman. But then he goes back. The Brayzer goes back and forth three times. He says, oh yeah, no, perhaps no. Maybe when the Torah says you're not allowed to desecrate Shabbos, it includes even the Bezdin. The Bezdin is not really desecrated. Well, what's the argument then? How do you counter this Kalvachim? My oyeinu the Kama. He says, hachi I can counter this logically, this logical, compelling argument of Kalvachim because I'll bring you a proof from another case. A case where a mace mitzvah, someone died, no one, uh, there's no one there to bury him, so we are obligated to bury him. Whoever finds him is obligated to bury him. If a koyan finds him, even the high priest, there's no one else to bury him, there's no one around, he's, uh, he's lying out there, mm-hmm. dead. He has to contaminate himself and bury him. Even though he's gonna, this, he won't be able to do the service in the temple. So we see that the mitzvah of mace mitzvah, is superior to doing the service over the service, and nevertheless, when Shabbos, you're not allowed to bury someone on Shabbos. You're desecrating Shabbos. You have to let him lie there till after Shabbos, and then you bury him. Someone dies, you can't bury him on Shabbos. So, so what do we see? That even something was superior than the service, but it doesn't push off Shabbos. So you're right. Fulfilling the mitzvah of carrying out the death sentence, of the court carrying out the death sentence, is superior to service. 
But nevertheless, it does not push off Shabbos. The court does not put someone to death on Shabbos. Mm-hmm. So I can bring an argument from this example. I can bring an argument uh, the opposite. But then he goes back and he says, but maybe not. <laughs> he goes back a third time, but maybe not. Maybe the Bezin is allowed to. What's the argument? The argument is, That alone, let me ask, let me question that whole premise. Why are you so certain that you're not allowed to bury a Mesa Mitzvah and Shabbos? Maybe I should be allowed to bury a Mesa Mitzvah and Shabbos. Why? From this same, very same service in the temple which is superior than Shabbos it overrides Shabbos nevertheless the mitzvah of the burying a dead overrides the service we tell the Koyen even the Koyen God will contaminate yourself even though you'll be in, won't be able to do the service now, this takes precedence over doing service, service in the temple so, so therefore and how do we know this from? We learn it out from the Achalachoyse. It says by a Nazir, a Nazir is not allowed to contaminate himself. He's not allowed to contaminate. A Nazirite has to be holy. Not only is he not allowed to drink wine, he's not allowed to contaminate himself. If he contaminates himself, he has to start counting all over again. And then the Torah spells out he's not allowed to contaminate himself to his father, to his mother, to his brother and sisters. He already told me he's not allowed to contaminate himself. Why does he have to repeat? He said he's not allowed to contaminate to anyone. Meaning, not like a regular coin. A regular coin is not allowed to contaminate, but he must contaminate to his relatives. His mother, father, brother, sister, daughter, son, his wife. But, but, uh, but, uh, but here there's no exception. So it says a Nazarite is like a high priest. A high priest is not allowed to contaminate himself, even to his close relatives. So why does he have to spell out the close relatives? He already told us. He's not allowed to contaminate himself. So he says it comes to teach me. comes to teach me. That only your father, you're not allowed to, you, you're not allowed to contaminate yourself. But a mace mitzvah, you could contaminate yourself. Okay? So you just have to give me one example. Why do you have to say the mother, the father? So each one is coming to teach me something. So, so the sister is coming to teach me that, that, um, that even in the case where he's on the way to bring a carbon Pesach, Carbon Pesach. If you don't bring a carbon Pesach, it's the only mitzvah in the Torah together with bris. If you don't do a positive mitzvah, your life gets cut off. He's on the way to do a carbon Pesach, and on the way he meets a Mace Mitzvah. So you would think to yourself, wait a minute, okay, listen, <laughs> my carbon Pesach comes ahead, I have to do the carbon Pesach, no matter what, come high water or low, I've got to do the carbon Pesach. So you tell him, no, no, only your sister is not allowed to contaminate, but a Mace Mitzvah, even if you're on the way to bring a carbon Pesach, in other words, to do the service in the temple, Burying a mace mitzvah is superior than bringing a carbon paste. Huh? Okay. <laughs> it's superior than, than bringing a carbon paste. So we see that burying the dead is even more important. Superior. Burying the dead who has no one to bury him is superior than the service. The service of a carbon paste. And nevertheless. We can't let you live here permanently. Means a permanent resident. And, never, and, and we see that the service pushes off Shabbos, if service pushes off Shabbos. And nevertheless, the, the burying of the dead is superior to the service. So, so Shabbos, 
which is pushed off for service. Service is superior than Shabbos. How much more so that burying your dead, you should bury your dead on Shabbos if you find someone lying there. Just cover them up. So that's why he says, that's why he goes back and forth and back again. That's what he says. We have a Pasuk that teaches us. So maybe, so therefore maybe you should say that the court should put someone, should carry out the death sentence on Shabbos. Because of this Kalvachayim, that's what the Pazak comes to teach us. No, but not in the court. The court is not allowed to carry out any death sentence. And from there we learn also the same thing is also base mitzvah does not push off Shabbos. Okay, now the Gemara says, In the beginning, the Gemara argued, The Gemara says, Why do we need a Pazak to teach me that the court cannot? carry out the death sentence on Shabbos, why would I think they could without a Pasuk? Without the Pasuk, I would say the court should carry out the death sentence. Why? Because we argued, because in the Torah, a positive commandment overrides a prohibition. Even a prohibition which has a death sentence. So why does he go back? So it's, it's powerful. So you explain it. Why is it? Or maybe not. Maybe you're not allowed to desecrate Shabbos. It includes even the court. The court is not allowed to. Why? You just said the positive commandment overrides a negative provision. But the, the court is allowed to is allowed to carry out the death on Shabbos. Okay, that's the argument. But the harder then he says, That's only a positive commandment. Only overrides a negative commandment per se. For example, tzitzis overrides the prohibition of shatnas. Only if there's a prohibition per se. But in the case where there's a death, a death, a prohibition that comes along with a death sentence, with a death penalty, dear, I, I don't know that, uh, dear, I, maybe I don't say a positive commandment overrides. And therefore, the question is: So why do why do we need a pasuk to teach me? And then he goes back, but no, but maybe not. Maybe the court is the exception. What's the argument back? In any case, whenever you say a positive mitzvah overrides a prohibition, which is more strict, a positive mitzvah or prohibition? Where do we see that? How do we see a, uh, uh, that a prohibition is stricter than a positive mitzvah? Because the punishment. What's the punishment for not doing a positive mitzvah? There's no lashes. What's the punishment for not doing for overriding? Yeah, lashes. No, for, for prohibition, you get lashes. So you see, it's much more. It's much more severe. So once I say that a positive mitzvah overrides a prohibition, what difference does it make? Nevertheless, the positive mitzvah overrides the prohibition, even though the prohibition is stricter than the positive mitzvah. Because in, in one aspect, doing the mitzvah is more important than not doing a prohibition. So if that's the case, I can argue what difference does it make if it's a strict, a, a severe strictness or a light strictness. A light strictness, what's the difference? Once I, once I, the principle, once you tell me the principle, that doing an action is more important than not doing, and so much so that it overrides a prohibition. So what difference does it make if it's a prohibition per se, or if it's a prohibition that has, that has a death sentence? Once I'm already overriding something that's, that's 
that's more strict than a, that's stricter than a positive mitzvah, then it overrides any prohibition. So that's why he's going back and forth and back and forth. And that's why we need a pasuk to tell me, no, that the court is not allowed to put the, carry out the death sentence on Shabbos. Um, and we don't say that a positive mitzvah overrides a prohibition. Now the Gemara says, wait a minute. So the question remains, and now we're back to the original question. Why do we need a Pasuk? This is, this is pages and pages going back to the original question. So why do we need a Pasuk to tell me that the mitzvah of Yibba, where the brother-in-law has to, the brother has to marry his sister-in-law, his, his brother who died childless. He has to marry his brother's wife. So the Torah has to teach me that he can't marry his brother's wife if his brother's wife happens to be a sister-in-law, his wife's sister. He can't live. He can't live with two sisters together. It's prohibited. Why do I need a verse? Why would I think even without a verse? Why would I even think? Why would I even entertain the thought that it's possible? A positive com- Yes, we know that a positive commandment overrides a prohibition, but that's the case of tzitnesis and shatnit. But in the case, because it's a, it's, it's a prohibition per se, in the case of, of a sister living with two sisters, which is, which is, which is karit, right, right, we don't find anywhere a positive mitzvah overrides such a, such a prohibition. argument of the Braise was because of a Kavachaymer, not because of a positive mitzvah over. Really, I'll tell you, I have no proof anywhere in the Torah that the, that the positive mitzvah overrides a prohibition that, 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 where there's a death sentence involved. So why do I need a Pasuk? So rather the Gemara says, till now the Gemara is trying to bring proofs. He brought a few proofs to tell me that I need a special verse uh, to teach me that it doesn't override, the positive mitzvah doesn't override which from that I understand that really the assumption is that a positive mitzvah should override even a prohibition that has a death sentence. And that's why I need a pasuk to teach me that the brother cannot marry the sister-in-law. Otherwise I would think he could because it's a positive mitzvah to carry on your brother's name and that overrides the prohibition of live, living with two sisters. But the mother refuted all of those proofs. So why do I need a pasuk? So the mother, rather the mother says, because I would think I would think So one of the 13, 13 principles, Rabbi Shmuel, how we expound the, the oral Torah, how we expound the Torah, this is the foundation of the oral Torah, and one of the principles is that something was, that was included in the generalization. And then we find an exception. It doesn't come, it's not just to teach itself, it's to teach regarding the whole generalization that this exception applies. So therefore, the Torah says you're not allowed to marry a sister-in-law. Period. Even if your brother dies, you're not allowed to marry a sister-in-law. Now the Torah makes an exception. If your brother dies childless, then you are allowed to marry her, and you're obligated to marry. Mm-hmm. So, not marrying a sister-in-law is part of all the adroyas, all the prohibited, all the prohibited relationships. And nevertheless, the Torah makes an exception when your brother, when your bro- brother dies childless. 
So maybe it applies. It doesn't just apply to that case. It applies to all cases, mm-hmm. including, including the other 15 right. cases that the Mishnah lists. No, if, you, if, you, if, you, if your brother married, two brothers married two sisters, yeah. and your brother yeah. died childless, yeah. and, and yeah. so the Torah allows, the Torah made an exception. Yeah. Your brother child childless, none of these uh, uh, relationship prohibitions apply anymore. You're obligated to marry, it doesn't matter if it's a sister-in-law, it doesn't matter. You're obligated. It overrides. The Tater says, in this case, the Tater made an exception. And this exception comes to teach not just this particular case of a sister-in-law, but any, any of the prohibitions. Why? He gives an example. Example for this principle. It says, It says, It says, A soul, in this week's parsha. Soul who eats from the from the shlamim from the peace offerings and he's impure, so his life will get cut off. The question is, shlamim is one of the one of the holy sacrifices, the peace offerings. Why does he exclude it? Already said in all the sacrifices regarding all the sacrifices that that whoever that you're not allowed to eat it in the state of impurity. So why does he single out the peace offerings? He already said all the sacrifices, which includes all the sacrifices, the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and the uh, peace Why does he single out this? Uh, so he's coming to teach on the whole rule, and the whole, the whole general rule. He's coming to teach that this, this, um, this uh, law, that if you eat, holy, sacred food in a state of impurity, your life gets cut off, only applies to sacrifices. Sacrifices that are sacred. Animals that are sacred. But if you eat the meat from the temple treasury, someone donates an animal to the temple treasury, so it belongs to the temple treasury, but it's not sacred. It's not the it's not the It's not an animal that's worthy of being offered on the altar. So therefore, even if you eat from that meat, you're not allowed to eat from the meat because it doesn't belong to you, it belongs to Hashem. But if you eat from that meat, your life doesn't get cut off. So it's coming to teach on any, any, not just in this particular case. Since the Torah is giving us an exclusion, it's coming to teach on the whole rule. So Hachinami here also, not live, marrying a sister-in-law was one of the, one of the prohibited relationships. Yeah. Yet the Torah makes an exclusion. The Torah makes an exception. So it's, it's, it's to juxtapose that all of them to tell you just like the Torah prohibits in the case of your brother dying childless, the Torah prohibit, uh, permits the relationship. This relationship, marrying a sister-in-law, all the arayas, all the prohibited relationships are permitted. That if she happens to be your sister, you're permitted. That's why I need a verse to teach me. No. And from there I learn regarding all the 15 that that, that, that prohibition remains in place. But without the Pasuk, I would have said, based on the principles, the 13 principles, Rabbi Shmuel taught, with which we expound the whole Torah, this is one of the principles. It should teach me that all the Arayas are permitted. You might ask, wait a minute. How could you compare? Meet Dami Hasam. Even without the Pasuk, how could you compare? 
there cloud is there the generalization it says you're not allowed to you're not allowed to eat any of the sacrifice in the state of impurity and he repeats it again in the he singles out the peace offering so that's why that's the principle when he singles out something that already was included in the generalization and then he singles it out and says the same thing the question is why does he single it out so whatever is coming to teach us not coming to teach us for this particular case it's coming to teach us for the whole generalization just like a peace offering is kachim the animal itself is sacred a sacred animal so to all the sacrifices versus the animals that belong to the to the temple treasury and, and they themselves are not saved. But here is different. But here is different. But there, the generalization is you're not allowed to have relations with these women. And including your, your, your sister, your brother's wife. You're not allowed to have relations with her, ever. Even after your brother dies, if there's children, you're not allowed to have relations with her. But the prat beheted. The detail here, the exception is that it's different. It's, it's, it takes it out of the cloud, that it's different than the cloud. It's something new, something novel. That here it's different. This is the exception. There in the case of Shlom, he's not saying it's an exception. The principle is, why does he have to repeat it? He already said it. So why does he single out and teach us the same thing he already taught us? It's part of the generalization. So he's coming to teach us something for the whole generalization. Here we're not saying that he's singling it out. He's making an exception. He's saying that the, your brother's wife, in this case, if he dies childless, we're making an exception, something innovative, something new. This case is the exception to the rule, and you're allowed to marry. So this is a different principle altogether. What's this principle? Alidami, aladover, none of the 13 principles. If something was part of the, of the generalization, the general rule. And then he, he makes an exception. That's something unique, something different. You can return it back to the, to the generalization until the Pusik spells out and tells you that brings it back to, to the generalization. Since it's exception to the rule, so maybe everything is an exception. This whole case is completely different. The Torah removes it from the generalization. By adding, by making an exception and teaching us something new, something novel, that's not, we don't find by the, with, the, with the generalization, the Torah is making an exception. Therefore, none of the rules of the generalization apply, apply to this case. And he brings an example. The time we learn the Brayzer. What's the example? It says, it says, it says in the in the case of the mitzayra, the case of the mitzayra, the purification of the mitzayra, and parshas mitzayra, you should slaughter the animal. So the mitzayra, after he's purified, right, he has to bring three sheep, and you slaughter the sheep. The same place we slaughter the sin offering. Where do you slaughter the sin offering? Which part of the courtyard must you slaughter the sin offering? It has to be in the northern part of the altar. You can't slaughter it anywhere in the altar, anywhere in the courtyard. Only in the northern part of the altar. So this the the this sheep 
this sheep also, this ashram, this guilt offering also has to be of the of the also has to be slaughtered in the same spot. Other sacrifices I can slaughter it anywhere. Shlom, the peace offerings I can slaughter it anywhere in the courtyard, even in the back of the temple, as long as it's, as it's in the courtyard. But the the chatas, the sin offering, must be slaughtered only in the north. Otherwise, it's not. It's disqualified. It's not optional. This is not a choice. It's not a kosher sacrifice. So he says the sheep, the ashram, the guilt offering, the sheep that the Mitzayda brings for his purification must be slaughtered in the same place. It's just clearly in the Torah. The guilt offering, the sin offering, and, and, the, and the, the burnt offering, which is kachim kachim, they have to be slaughtered in the northern part of the court. The Makkah Makkadish, in the holy place, because he says, like the Chata, so to the Ashram, so to this guilt offering. Just like a sin offering, so to this guilt offering. What's it coming to teach me? What's it coming to teach me? You already told me that you have to slaughter it in the same place. What's it coming to teach me? Because without this verse, I would say, I would argue, the, the, the difference between there's something new and novel and unique and exception that we find with the guilt offering of the Mitzayra that we don't find by the Chathas. What's the exception? The Chathas offering, all the blood, all the blood that's collected has to be sprinkled on the altar. The, the guilt offering of the Mitzayra is the exception. What's the exception? You collect the blood, but instead of pouring the whole blood, sprinkling the whole blood on the altar, you take some of that blood and you smear it on his right toe, on his right his hand, his right hand, the right toe of his, of, his, of his foot, his right leg, the toe of his right foot, and also in his ears, his ears. So you're taking some of the blood, instead of pour, sprinkling all the blood on the altar, you're removing some of the blood and sprinkling on it. So since the Torah makes an exception, it's different than all the other sacrifices. So I would think, maybe all the other rules of the generalization doesn't apply here. Maybe I, I don't have to sprinkle it at all on the altar. Maybe I don't have to, I don't have to offer the, the, the parts on the altar altogether. Since the Torah makes an exception. Okay, so where the Torah spells out, the Torah spells out, you have to slaughter it the same way you have to slaughter the sin offering. Okay, that the Torah says clearly. But anything else, where the Torah doesn't say explicitly, but just you would think it's part of the, the, the generalization. It says uh, all guilt offerings, you have to burn some of the animal on the altar and you have to sprinkle the blood on the altar. But since the Torah makes an exception that the, the guilt offering of the Mitzayda is different than any other sacrifice in the world, because mm-hmm. this sacrifice, we take some of the blood instead of sprinkling all the blood, we take some of the blood and, and use it to smear in certain parts of it. So therefore, maybe, maybe I would say, since the Torah took it out, it's an exception. Therefore, none of the rules of the generalization apply here. You don't have to burn any part of it on the altar. You don't have to sprinkle any of the blood on the altar. That's why the Torah has to say, Kachatas Ka'asham, that the sin offering has to be, the guilt offering in this case has to be treated just like a Kachatas. Like a Kachatas, you have to sprinkle the blood on the altar and you have to burn parts of the animal on the altar. So to here also. But without the Torah telling me, I wouldn't know it. So to over here, it's the same thing. Uh, uh, we continue on side B, 7B. 
So too over here, this case of the sister, of, of, the, of, the, of, your, of your brother's wife, when the Torah says you're allowed to marry, it's the exception. So unless the Torah, so I wouldn't know, I can't learn from there that all the Arayas, all the prohibited relationships are override and I'm allowed, to, I'm allowed to marry and I must marry your brother's wife even though she's your wife's sister. Your sister I wouldn't know that. This is the exception. So only this exception. But I can't learn from there for, for, for the generalization. Mm-hmm. So the question remains, why would I need a verse to teach me that I can't marry my sister-in-law? Why would I even think I can marry my sister-in-law? Mm-hmm. That's because the Torah permits me to marry my brother's wife, but that's the exception. That makes it different than all the other Adoyas. And I cannot learn that all the other prohibited relations are permitted from there. In today's society, let's say, push them, push them to the... Uh, There's other ways, right? Okay, but let's finish. He says, So without the verse, I would say that the guilt offering of the Mitzayi is the exception. And therefore, it's the exception. And it's not part of the generalization. The Torah removed it from the generalization. And you don't have to sprinkle any of the blood. And you don't have to burn any parts of it in the altar. That's why the Torah has to tell me, that just like a sin offering, you have to sprinkle the blood and you have to burn the parts on the, on the altar. On the altar. So Arsham is also, the Torah brings it back into the generalization. Till the Torah itself returns it back to the generalization that all the general rules apply in this case also, even though I took some of the blood, but the rest of the blood I have to sprinkle on the altar and I have to burn parts of it on the altar. But if the Torah would not return it, I mean, I would say, let's just finish, I would say, whatever the Torah spells out. For example, the Torah says you have to slaughter it the same way you have to slaughter a sin offering and a burnt offering. Yes. But whatever the Torah did not spell, the Torah doesn't say that the guilt offering of a Mitzayda you have to burn on the altar and you have to sprinkle. I would say, you know what? This is the exception. This, this is a unique sacrifice. It's unlike any other sacrifice. So therefore, Hachinami over here also, have a mean I would say, the Torah permits, the Torah makes an exception. The Torah says that your sister-in-law, your brother's wife, you're allowed to. But Shadadoyes Loi. Others, other prohibitions. Why would he even think that you're allowed to? Why do I need a verse to tell me that I'm not allowed to marry my, my wife's sister? Why would he even think that you are allowed to? I mean, I would think, I would think, yes, it's not from this principle of no. but it's another way we derive things from the Torah. Just like in this case, it comes to teach us in all the other cases. Just like there's a prohibition. You're not allowed to marry your sister-in-law, your brother's wife, even after his death. But nevertheless, the Torah says you are allowed to if he dies childless. And there's a mitzvah to, to carry on your brother's legacy in his name and give him a child. So too, we shall learn from there that all the prohibitions are allowed. The mother says, wait a minute. How could you how could you learn one from the other? Mid dummy how could you meet dummy, how could you compare them? There, there's only one prohibition. Which prohibition? You're not allowed to marry your sister-in-law, your brother's wife. with if your brother was married to your wife's sister, there's two prohibitions. Today is Suri. 
There's a prohibition of your brother's wife, and there's a prohibition of your wife's sister. So we, how do I learn? You can't learn by memetino. It's not, it's not apples to apples. I'm not comparing apples to apples. If it was just one prohibition, I could learn one prohibition, one prohibition. The Torah allows one prohibition, the Torah allows one. But where do you see the Torah allows two prohibitions? You override two prohibitions? You're allowed to marry uh, your brother's wife and your sister's sister, and your wife's sister? So the mother says, no, still I would think. I would think. Since the Torah permits it already, then everything is permitted. Mm-hmm. The mother says, wait a minute. Where do you see this logic? That this is a logical argument that since the Torah permits it, it doesn't matter one or two or three or four or five. What's the difference? The Torah allows and allows. Where do we see this principle? So he says, I'll tell you where we find this principle. Tanya, we learn the Braise. Okay, here, the Halton Kapab is, okay. And the eighth day after he counted seven clean days, and he went to the mikvah, the eighth day he brings the sacrifices, and the eighth day is erev pesach. So by pure, he's not allowed to eat the sacrifice until until he brings his. He's not allowed to eat the carbon pesach until he brings the sacrifices to fully uh, atone and purify himself from the mitzayr. It's called mechusik yipur. Huh? Yeah, yeah. In the morning, in the morning, he brings the he brings the sign. But here we have a problem. What's the problem? He had a nocturnal emission. He had uh, he saw he saw right. He had an emission of a semen on that day, an erev Pesach, and he went to the mikvah v'tavo. So here we have a problem. What's the problem? Someone who's impure is not allowed to enter into the temple. Now there's three levels of pure of, of pure. There's the temple, there's the temple mount, and then there's Yerushalayim. So the Torah gives three different levels of impurity. If someone is a leper, you have to be you have to be expelled out of Yerushalayim. That's called the, the, the Jewish camp. You can't even be in the Jewish camp. Be outside of the camp. If you're not a leper, you're allowed to live in Yerushalayim. But if you have any emission from your body. Whether a gonorrhea or a woman, a nida menstruates or a zava, or she gave birth, any tumor that comes from your body, including a keri, you're allowed to be in your shrine, you're not allowed to go in the temple mount. That's called the camp of the Levium. You're not allowed to enter into the temple mount. If, if you came in contact with a dead mouth, a sherit, or a dead carcass, a carcass of an animal, or even even a corpse. Yeah. You're allowed in the Temple Mount, but you're not allowed into, into the Temple. Someone who... Someone who um, is purified already, but he didn't bring his atonement yet, he's not allowed to enter the temp- on the Temple. What if you go into the Temple in a state of impurity? Your life gets cut off. If the Torah doesn't allow you to enter the temple, your life gets cut off. So the Mitzayda has a little of a problem. What's the Mitzayda's problem? The Mitzayda is trying to achieve an atonement. He's not allowed into the temple until he brings the sacrifices. But in order to bring the sacrifices, he has to be, the Kayan has to put the smear, the blood on his thumb, his right thumb, on, his, on the thumb of his, of his, of his, of his right leg. On his ears, how do you? He can't get there. He can't walk in until he does catch twenty-two. 
So what do you do? So he would stand in the, in the gate of Nikner. The gate of Nikner was the gate between the women's courtyard and the men's courtyard. The women's courtyard was really part of the Temple Mount. It wasn't considered the Temple. The Temple really begins with the Ezra Sisro, with the upper, upper courtyard. Above the steps. But the gate, they never sanctified the gate. The gate was considered part of the outer courtyard. So the, the Mitzayda can stand within the gate. And then he just sticks his, his thumb in. He just sticks his thumb in. And the Kayin is standing in the, in the courtyard. And smears the blood on his thumb. And then and his right thumb. And then his leg. And then his ears. And sticks his ears. In. And then he's okay. Now, the problem is... Here we have Teddy. Teddy... Kedi is is something that comes from the body, so he's not allowed to enter the Temple Mount. So even though he went to the mikveh, but he's tful yom, he has to wait till the night time. He's still impure. He's allowed to eat meiser sheni, but regarding truma kachim, he's still impure. He can't eat truma till the night, and he's impure. And kachim, he's not allowed into the Temple Mount. So what do we do? How can he bring a carbon Pesach? He can't even get to the Harshar Niknar. He can't even get to the gate to put his thumb in. But they made it in So the Braise says that the, the, the rabbis say, Amru Chachamim, the rabbis said, Afalpi, even though Shein Tful Yoyim, Acher Niknas, another Tful Yoyim, someone who had a keri, and he went to the mikvah. But before the nightfall, is not allowed to even step foot into the Temple Mount. So therefore, how can he go? But in this case, we made an exception. Since he has to bring a carbon Pesach, he can't wait. He can get right, he get karas. Zen nichnas. Why? Because mutav, better, better, that the positive commandment, which is accompanied by karas, is the only positive commandment, which if you don't do this positive commandment, it and mila, bris, carbon Pesach and a bris, if you don't do it, you get karas. The mitzvah of sending all the impure away from your camp, keeping it away from the Temple Mount. So which mitzvah? If you have a mitzvah that's accompanied by karas, so strict, it's so severe, if you don't do this mitzvah, your life gets cut off. You're not even a Jew. This is The Pesach is the birth of a Jew. If you're not born, you know, it's a non-starter. I have to make sure he brings a carbon Pesach. So much so, it's the only mitzvah that the Torah allows you to a second chance because you can't be a Jew without a carbon Pesach. You can't even begin. It's the birth of the Jew. So, so in this case, let them do this mitzvah that overrides, let them violate the positive commandment of sending out all the impure for, from the Temple Mount. So let him go, he's violating the mitzvah. But nevertheless, let him violate this minor mitzvah in comparison to this important mitzvah and let him stand there and, and get his purification. Now, of course, he can't eat. He can't, he's not allowed in. But by the time the night comes, and by the time I come, he'll be able to eat from, from the Paschal So he'll send this Pesach. He says, please take care of the carbon Pesach for me. I'm appointed in this carbon Pesach. And at night, I'll be able to join you and eat, eat from the carbon Pesach. Okay, one second. You might have not finished. Yeah, but that's never the first option. Really, biblically, you don't even have an assay. There's no... There's no, really no problem. <clears throat> because once you go to the mikveh, if you have a keti, but once you go to the mikveh, biblically you can go into the temple. There's no problem. It's only rabbinically you're not allowed. What's the source? Shenemar, it says, by Yamed Yeshafat Bekal Yehuda, in the times of King Yeshafat, from the Judean kings, so the Jewish people were impure, 
and he, and and they purified themselves. It says Yeshafet stood in the in the congregation of Yehuda before the courtyard, Hadosh, the new courtyard. My What do you mean the new courtyard? The temple wasn't it wasn't a new courtyard. Meaning that the rabbis instituted new laws. And they said, Biblically, someone who was impure and he went to the mikveh right away, even though he can't eat from the sacred sacrifice, and he can't eat from the truma, but he can, he can go into the, to the temple mount. There's no problem. But the rabbis at that time, the rabbis then, in the times of Yeshua, made a decree that even a tful yoyim is not allowed to step foot into the, into the, into the temple mount. And Ula said, So Ullah said, the problem is, we have another problem. So one, yes, biblically, he's allowed to go into the temple. The rabbis say he's not allowed. And the rabbis said, you know what, in the case of a carbon Pesach, we allow him. But the question is, how is he allowed to stick his thumb into the temple? Someone who is mechusiki purim, someone who doesn't have an atonement, who needs an atonement before he can eat from the sacred sacrifices, he, he, can't, he can't enter into the temple itself. And if he enters, your life gets cut off. How much more so, someone who went to the mikveh, but he's a tful yoyim, it didn't even, it didn't even, it's before the nightfall. So he's still impure. He's not allowed to even eat truma. He's impure. So surely he's not allowed to enter into the Temple Mount. And what's called entering? Do I have to enter with my entire body? No. The slightest entry. You stick your nose in. You already entered. And you get cutters. So how can, so yes, you said, the reason why the rabbis say Karim Karim Pesach is really, it's only rabbinic. There's really no problem. What do you mean there's no problem? Forget about the Temple Mount. Forget about the Nikner, which was never sanctified. But he's sticking his thumb in. He's a Balkeri. He's sticking his thumb in. He's a Tful Yoim. It's biblical. His life is going, to get cut, is going to get cut off. So what are you... You're juxtaposing the carbon Pesach. Why is the carbon Pesach so important? Because your life is going, to, is going to get cut off. He's putting his thumb in. His life is getting cut off. Why? Why? Which one is more important? So how could you allow him? So that's what he said, the principle. Vamalula, so Ola explains, you know, Matam, you know why you allowed him? Since the Torah says, you have the same question, any Mitzayda, it's a catch-22. How could the Mitzayda and Mechusiki put him? How is he allowed to stick his thumb? The Torah says, you have, you have no choice. The Torah says you're allowed. Once the Torah allows him and gives him permission, then it doesn't matter one prohibition, two prohibitions, even the prohibition of a carry, he's also allowed. Biblically he's allowed. There is no karis. That's why the rabbi says, it's only rabbinic. The rabbis say, let him, let him come in. We invite him in and let him stick his thumb in and by the evening he'll be able to eat the carbon Pesach. So the same thing over here also, the same argument. Since the Torah allows the prohibition of marrying a sister-in-law, your brother's wife, once it's permitted, what's the difference? One prohibition, two prohibitions, it's permitted. So even if she happens to be your, your wife's sister, it should also be permitted. That's why I need a verse to tell me that you're not allowed to. But the mother's going to question that to be continued. Everyone have a wonderful day.